Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we consider scripture, um, this is a human book that's written by human authors, but it's also a divine book that's written by your Holy Spirit. And so let us become good listeners of the word and and obey James' command to be uh, slow to speak, but quick to hear. Give us ears to hear uh, this book. Let us have ears to hear the details and, and the language that it uses. And we pray that you would use it to make us godly and into people who look more and more like Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we finished chapter 11 yesterday. We'll pick up in chapter 12. From chapter 1 through chapter 11, Paul has made a couple of theological arguments. He's talked about how salvation occurs. He's talked about the sureness of God's promises. I'm not going to rehash everything we've looked at in those chapters. But whenever we hit chapter 12, there's a transition that happens. Chapters 12 through 16 become incredibly practical. They're about ethics and Christian living. And he starts off chapter 12. If you guys have your Bibles, I want you to look at something very early in chapter 12. All right. Um, there's, a, there's a translation thing that happens here that irritates me to no end. Uh, it, is, it is one of the places where I think that uh, English translations miss the mark. Picking up in chapter 12, verse 1, these are verses that you guys probably know. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So basically he says, in light of all of God's mercies that we've looked at in the first 11 chapters, here's now what I want you to do. Here is my appeal to you. Right? In light of all that we've said about God and the gospel and grace and his promises, here is now what I want you to do. He says in verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifices in the Old Testament, what was true about all of them? They were dead. dead. Now, you're not supposed to present a dead lamb or a dead goat. You're supposed to present your living self as a sacrifice to God. So, uh, all of those... uh, sacrificial commands in the New Testament. We, we've talked about those before. Do we continue to do animal sacrifices? No. Why? Yeah, Jesus was our sacrifice. So one of the ways that we can obey those sacrificial commands in the beginning of Leviticus is believe in Jesus, the one true sacrifice. Another way that Paul says we can obey those commands is by now presenting a different sacrifice, sacrifice of our lives. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Yeah, except that is... The word for spiritual in Greek is pneuma. Anything about like spirit or soul in Greek is the word pneuma. The word that's used right there is not pneuma. You guys tell me what it is. What does that look like? Logic. Logic. And your footnote probably says something like that. If, you're, if your Bible has a footnote at the end of verse 1, it probably says something about uh, this could be translated your rational service or your logical service or something along those lines. That's really what Paul's saying. He's saying in light of all the things we said about God and his mercy and his grace and his promises and the gospel, you should now present your bodies to him as living sacrifices. And this is your 
logical worship. This is your rational worship. Paul is saying it's the thing that makes the most sense to do. If God really is as merciful and gracious as we've said that he is, if he's really made these promises like we say that he has, if he's really given us his son and given us salvation through the gospel, then the thing that makes the most sense to do is to give our lives over to him, to give ourselves to one who loves us better than we love ourselves. That's what Paul is saying. It's your rational worship, not your spiritual worship. That's a bad translation. He goes on and he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He then is going to launch into just a lot of different ethical commands. And one of the things that I asked you guys to do is, uh, as you were reading through chapters 12 through 16, I asked you to highlight places where Paul either directly quotes or at least seems to be alluding back to Old Testament law. Does he do that here? Yeah. Yeah, what are some examples? Okay, yeah, um, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, has a lot about submission to authority. Um, And you said that that's connected, um, because you were a good Presbyterian who has been catechized, you said this is connected to the fifth commandment. What is the fifth commandment? Um, uh, Honor your father and mother. Yeah, and in chapter 13, this is actually about submission to what type of authority? Yeah, it's submission to government. But Sophia's right, it is connected to the fifth commandment um, to uh, honor father and mother. Um, How? How are those connected? This tells you honor mom and dad. This tells you honor the government. How are those connected? You remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took the Ten Commandments and then, like... Do not kill. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, what did he say? Even in your thoughts. Yeah, even in your thoughts don't murder, which meant for Jesus, don't even become what? Angry. Angry. What Jesus was saying there, he wasn't replacing the Ten Commandments. He was getting at their true meaning. And he said, the commandment says, don't murder, but that would rule out even murdering someone in your heart. It would even rule out anger. Now, does the commandment come out and say, don't be angry either? But it's a necessary implication. It's, it's where you, if you were thinking and meditating on the commandment, it would lead you to that place. All right, he says, don't commit adultery. And he goes even further and he says, what? Don't even lust. Don't even commit uh, adultery in your mind. All right? Now, does the commandment actually say do not commit adultery and that means don't even have a lust don't even have lustful fantasies engage in those. Is that what the commandment says? But it's again a necessary outworking of the commandment. What does it mean not to have adultery? It means to nip it at the bud. To quote a uh, old Andy Griffith show. You guys seen Andy Griffith? Uh, what's the, what's his buddy that always says nip it, nip it in the bud. Um, 
Yeah, uh, the other cop, I can't remember. Yeah. Barney, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Barney five. Um, so here, all right, we have a commandment: honor your father and your mother. And the way that this should be understood is that it's really a command to honor authorities that are over you. Remember that the fifth commandment is in the first tablet of the law. First tablet of the law is all about your responsibility to God. Second tablet of the law, uh, commandments six through ten, are your responsibility to what? To other people. Well, this one, it would look like it should be in the second tablet. Uh, you know, it, it looks like it should be uh, honor father and mother. This should be your responsibility to other people. It's actually in the first tablet, though. Something to God. Who puts everybody in authority? God. God does. So whenever you submit to authorities, you're submitting to those that God has put over you. It's submission to God. So does that only include father and mother? Does that include other authority figures too? Others too. But whenever you talk back to your teachers, you're breaking the fifth commandment. All right. Whenever, whether you like him or not, whenever you say things about let's go Brandon to insult Joe Biden, you're breaking the fifth commandment. So the... Uh, this would be a place where, where that's working. Where else do we see the Old Testament in these chapters? Old Testament law. Later in 13, it quotes more of the commandments and then says, um, and then it quotes Leviticus and says, yeah. you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, 13, 8 through 10 <laughs> quotes um, about half the Ten Commandments. Uh, and it also quotes uh, the great law from Leviticus. I think it's, is that from Leviticus 19? Um, yeah, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, earlier in chapter 12, we had from Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So over and over and over again, we see in these ethical commandments that Paul, his standard for ethics, the place that he looks in order to learn right and wrong and then pass it on to the church is what? The moral components of God's law. So, um, you know, once again, earlier in the letter, he has statements about you're not under law, you're under grace. Um, and he does talk about how we're not under the law anymore, but Paul cannot mean by that that the law has no responsibility or no role in the Christian life. We still have a responsibility to know it, to follow it, to obey it. The law is still important for us, and we get pictures of that in his ethical commandments here. Um, really kind of the big kickers in 14 and 15, though, um, the big ethical commandments that he has have to do with how the Jews and Gentiles are going to relate with one another. They need to love each other. Um, can you love somebody well if you're constantly thinking about how much better you are than them? No. So chapters 12 and 13, there's a lot of emphasis placed on humility, on love. And then whenever we get into chapter 14, this is what Paul says. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. Who would believe that? Gentiles. While the weak person eats only vegetables. Who might that be? The Jews who are scared that any meat they find in Rome has been sacrificed to idols or is unclean or something. Right? 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains from food pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed both. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another person? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. Who would that probably be a reference to? Jews. While another esteems all days alike. Who would that probably be? Mm -hmm. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Notice that Paul doesn't say, you guys who eat food and are fine with it should really, really pester the other group and be like, hey, it's fine. Why are you being so prudish? It, does, is his ethic here, you guys should bicker and argue about it and, and you shouldn't rest until the other people are convinced of your opinion? No. His ethic is each of you should be convinced in his own mind and you should do what accords with your own conscience. But should you pass judgment on the other group? No. So the ethic here doesn't have anything to do with food or holy days. Paul doesn't really care about that. At the end of the day, it's about honoring the Lord. You do what honors the Lord. You do according to your conscience. Now, if you're going against your own conscience, are you honoring the Lord? If you think to yourself, ooh, I don't think it's right for me to eat this, and it bothers me whenever I eat it, I feel guilty, but I'm going to eat it anyways, would that honor the Lord? No. Live before him with a clear conscience. Do what you need to do. But don't pass judgment on someone just because they're different. Verse 10, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. A little bit later down in verse 13, he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So which side would Paul be on? Uh, the people who eat or the people who don't eat? The people who eat. He says, I know and I'm convinced that all, nothing is unclean in and of itself. Uh, all food is clean now. But he continues and says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved over what you eat, you're not walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. So if you guys are all at a church meal, if you're all sharing a table and fellowshipping with each other, and you've got a, a, a Jewish guy over here who's become a Christian, but he's still really uncomfortable with pork. All right? You shouldn't sit next to him munching on beef jerky. Don't put a stumbling block before him. Don't pressure him to go against conscience. Because doing that would not be walking in love. Don't destroy his conscience. Christ died for him. Well, don't do anything that's going to put a stumbling block or hindrance in his way. Verse 16, 
Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another person stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. From whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Notice that Paul in this text is dealing with amoral issues. Um, is it a matter of righteousness whether you eat shrimp or not? Is it a matter of righteousness? Um, you know, are Christians obligated to still during, uh, you know, we can still calculate using the moon and everything when the day of atonement ought to be. Um, what did Jews do during the Day of Atonement? It was the one day when they had to do what? Fast. Fast. Um, would you be sinning if you decided during the Day of Atonement you still wanted to fast? Would you be sinning if you didn't fast during that day? You wouldn't. These are amoral issues. It's, they're not matters of righteousness. And Paul is saying on these issues, it's fine just to agree to disagree. The ethic here is don't make your brother stumble and do what accords with your conscience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, some people have tried to use this text to justify certain sins. You think that's a sin. I don't think that that's a sin, but we can agree to disagree. But sometimes people will, will take things that God has spoken pretty clearly about and we'll try to use this text to justify them. Something breaks the Ten Commandments. Does it fall into this category where we can agree to disagree? No. Right? Um, you know, the things that we're dealing with here are things that are kind of indifferent morally. They're not positively good or negatively bad. Um, they're just things that we have Christian freedom on. But there are issues where God's word speaks very clearly and says, this is what the church should do. This is what the church should not do. And on issues like that, we shouldn't compromise. And we shouldn't say, we'll just agree to disagree. We, we have to take Paul in context here again. Paul has just given us a bunch of ethical commands. You know, um, things about humility, things about abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what's good, things about love and Things about not avenging oneself. These are not things that fall into the Romans 14 camp where we agree to disagree. Those are ethical issues that God has clearly spoken on. So there's a right and wrong answer to those. But over what to eat and, and when to fast or something like that, those are things that Christians get to kind of determine for themselves. It's a matter of our own heart and own conscience and own liberty. And on those things, we shouldn't pass judgment on one another. He continues in 15 verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. 
How did Christ not please himself? Yeah, he died for you, right? He did what was good for you, even though it was bad for him. And Paul uses that now as an ethic for Christians, right? Don't just look to to please yourself. Look to please your neighbor because, verse 3, Christ didn't please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome each other. If Jesus welcomes Gentiles with open arms, you welcome Gentiles with open arms. If he's welcomed Jews with open arms, you welcome them with open arms. As Christ did, you should do. Um, the last thing that I want to point out from Romans, well, really kind of two last things. We'll, we'll do this today and uh, for a few minutes and then tomorrow, um, is in chapter 16. Chapter 16 is one of those things that maybe made some of your eyes gloss over because it's like a list of, of, of names in this church. Paul's never been to this church, but he knows a lot of people there. So at the end of his letter, he starts saying, say hi to these people for me. And um, it's quite interesting, the names that show up. Chapter 16, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the Lord, or a servant of the church at uh, Chincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Um, Phoebe is a man or woman. She's a girl, our sister Phoebe. Um, she is a servant of the church. That word for servant is a feminine form of the word deacon. So she's probably a deaconess. Um, and Paul is commending her to the church. Um, that means that Phoebe's not a member of the church. She's someone who is going to Rome. And Paul is saying, I give you my approval of her. She's someone you can trust. She's someone I think highly of. Um, She's been a patron of Paul, which means that she is probably wealthy, maybe a widow, and she's paid for a lot of Paul's traveling expenses, paper and, uh, well, not really paper, papyrus and ink are kind of expensive, so maybe she's even the one that paid for this letter to be written. Um, But she's going to Rome. And she's seemingly been with Paul. So guess what Phoebe's probably doing as she's going to Rome? What does Paul need to get to Rome? Taking the letter. The letter. Phoebe's probably the mail person. Um, so Phoebe is probably the one that's carrying this letter and, and bringing it to the people at Rome. Um, and then he starts uh, greeting several people in the church. And this is a fascinating, fascinating list. Greet Prisca and Aquila. This is a married couple that Paul worked with during his missionary journeys. They're the ones that take Apollos aside uh, and teach him the faith more fully. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, I think is how you say that, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. 
So all of, already, um, this is a multi-ethnic church. This guy's from Asia. Rome is in what continent? Europe. Europe right? Um, so um, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. What are they? So, so what ethnicity? Jewish. Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they're well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. They got saved before me. Greet Amphilitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Starchus. And I just like pointing out that Starchus's name um, means head of wheat. You guys know how wheat grows? Like it's a stalk and then it has like the head at the top that you harvest. Um, literally, you would translate his name wheat head, which I mean, like there's no really particular importance attached to that. I just think it's funny. Um, like you hear starch in his name, right? So uh, yeah, I just like that guy. I would have wanted to be his friend. Um, greet Aphelis, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Uh, by the way, there's been a couple of names that maybe have stuck out to a couple. Narcissus. What does that sound like? Narcissus. Yeah, narcissist. Someone who's upset. Where does the name, that word, like if you call someone narcissistic, they're obsessed with themselves. What is, where does that name come from? Yeah, he's the one who looks at his reflection in the pond. He falls in, yeah. Um, so, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit later on, uh, is it in this letter? Yeah, verse 14, there's a guy with a really weird name, Hermes. Who is Hermes? Yeah. Um, there's another person in verse 15, Olympus. So these people have been named after, um, they've been named after um, Greek characters from the Greek myth. Some of them are named after the Greek gods, Hermes. Um, that means that they were special people. You know what that means? They're life was like before they became Christians? They were pagan. Not just pagan. It means that they were probably associated with the temples. So, um, like Hermes was probably someone who lived and ministered and was maybe even a priest before Hermes. And these people have now stopped worshiping those gods and have worshiped Christ instead. Um, the guy that really gets me in this whole thing, down in verse 23, um, he sends a greeting from a brother named Cortus. You see that? Oh, a, a court or a quarter, what number does that make you think of? Four, yeah, four. All right. Um, anytime you're reading through any of these, um, Tryphania and Tryphosos, uh, up in verse 12, the um, try, you see try in their name, that means what? Three. Anytime you see one of these people who has a number in their name, it's a really significant thing. It means that they were a slave. 
your first slave gets a name something along the lines of Primos, one, and then you start numbering them off, because like you, you'll have slaves that then like will give birth, right? So so like you'll have a you'll maybe buy a slave, and that slave had a name. They were they were captured from somewhere. That slave has a son or a daughter, and you start giving them names related to numbers if if they're born a slave in your household. So Cortus was born a slave, and he was number what? Four. He was the fourth born slave in the household. So um, several of the people listed in this list, like Urbanus, um, are, are people that are probably associated with wealth. You've also got people who are slaves. So there is this complete breakdown in the Church of Rome. You've got Jews and Gentiles. You've got Asians and Europeans. Uh, there's this, there's this um, multi-ethnic. You've got multi, um, like kind of socioeconomic. You've got slaves and rich people. Uh, you've got people from all these different, um, you, you've got people that grew up Jewish with the scriptures. You've got people that were probably priests to Hermes. And all of these people from different backgrounds are all together in this one church. A very beautiful picture in this chapter. So we'll pick up and look at that a little bit more tomorrow. It's time to go.